Tonight's reading can be found in 1 John, chapter 5, starting at verse 6, going through to 17. It can be found on page 1228 of the Church Bibles, but you may prefer to look up rather than look down. Um, We'll take a dramatic form. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. We agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave as eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin and not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. This is the word of God. I'm going to start off uh, this evening with a question for you. A question that should be on the screen behind me. How do you prove someone's identity? Most of you will have applied for a job or a position at a college or university at some point where you would have needed a reference, someone to provide information about you so that you were able to get the job or entry into that college or university. Last summer, I gave a few references for people how to, helping out on camps where I had to write uh, why this person would or wouldn't be suitable for the various different roles. It was a kind of character witness statement. And in those character references, they're really asking, uh, who is this person? And the question that we'll be asking ourselves tonight is, who is Jesus Christ? We're carrying on our series in 1 John that we've been going through since uh, the beginning of September. And we've almost come to the end with John tying in some big conclusions in this passage. 
And tonight, we're in the law courts, where we'll see one, uh, in 1 John 5 that the identity of Jesus Christ is on trial, and that John is the defense attorney or lawyer, and he'll be calling on various different witnesses for character references on Jesus. Right at the end of last week's passage in uh, 1 John 5 verse 5, John poses this question, who is it that overcomes the world? And he answers by saying that only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now this belief that Jesus was the Son of God was the precise thing that the false teachers were denying in the time that John was writing these letters to the various churches. Specifically, they were denying the divinity of Christ, stating that Jesus was born a natural son of both Mary and Joseph. And to dispense with the deity of Christ is to dispense with the only way that human beings can come into any real fellowship with God. These false teachers also went on to claim that the divine part of Christ only joined Jesus, the natural son of Joseph, at his baptism, equipping him for his ministry only again to leave him uh, as Jesus died on the cross, where he died as nothing more than an ordinary man. For them, Jesus was a great man, a fine teacher, a wonderful example, but he was not the eternal Son of God, no second person of the Trinity made flesh. Now, these views of the false teachers may sound a bit weird to us here today in the 21st century, the divine part of Christ uh, coming and going, and it's a view that not many people would hold today. But the conclusion that the false teachers drew from their beliefs about Jesus Christ is exactly the same as millions of people in the world today. Who is Jesus? Well, not many people uh, would outright deny the existence of Jesus. There is simply way too much evidence to show that this man existed and lived in first century Israel. But then, what is the answer to that question? Who is Jesus? Well, in response to that question, so many people would say that he was some historic figure who was a good man, a powerful teacher, and who had some pretty helpful pointers about love but nothing more. So can you see that actually what so many people believe about Jesus in the Western world, in the UK, and here in Basingstoke, is fundamentally exactly what the false teachers believed. So we really need to listen to what John says in this chapter, in this passage, because it's so relevant for us today. Let's get stuck into the passage and back to the law courts. John is the defense lawyer, and he starts off his defense in verse 6. Have a look down at the uh, passage you've got there on page 1228 of uh, 1 John 5. And in verse 6, with a, he starts off with a strong assertion as to who we're talking about. This, Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who came. This same title was used by John the Baptist, when he asked Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist was waiting for the promised Messiah, the one who all the prophets had described and the one to whom the whole of the Old Testament was pointing to. 
So here in our passage, we see John, not the Baptist, John the Apostle, asserting that this is Jesus, the one who came, the one who fulfilled all the promises given by the Father as the Saviour sent from God. And that's literally just the first line of our passage this evening. After this, we see John bringing in his three witnesses, his three character references for Jesus. And in the second uh, part of verse 6, we read, He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. The word by here, literally translated, is through. So it's through water and blood that Jesus came. Maybe ask ourselves, what on earth is going on here? In what sense did Jesus come through water? And how does that show us that he is the son of God? That question that we're asking ourselves this evening. Well, first off, then, water. Well, we know from the Gospels that the beginning of his ministry was marked by water in his baptism in the River Jordan. And in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 9 to 11, we read of Jesus' baptism. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now this isn't to say that before Jesus' baptism, Jesus wasn't the Son of God. No, rather, this was, if you like, Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, going public as he began the work which he came to do. And we see in those verses in Mark that both God and the Holy Spirit God the Father confirming that Jesus is the Son of God. So God the Father and God the Spirit confirming that Jesus was the Son of God. So it was a coming through water to take up the work which his Father had entrusted him. And that's our first character witness, the water. But it wasn't by water alone that Jesus came, but by water and blood If it had been for water alone, it would be uh, very easy for the false teachers to argue against Jesus being the Son of God. But it's in light of the blood that we can know and believe. The blood being Jesus' death on the cross. Where we see that he was whipped and blood flowed from his back. Where a crown of thorns was placed upon his head and blood flowed from his brow. Where he was nailed to a cross and blood flowed from his wrists and from his feet. Where he was pierced in his side with a spear, and blood flowed from his side. It was through blood, it was by the shedding of his blood, that we can know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The purpose of his coming that was announced at his baptism was fulfilled by his sacrificial death. So we can know from this that Jesus was fully the eternal Son of God at his death, just as he was at his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, and at his birth, the incarnation. So we've seen the character witnesses of water and blood. And the third and final witness that John calls to the stand is the Spirit. Have a look at the third and final part of verse 6 there. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. 
The Holy Spirit's role in providing a character reference to Jesus is to testify to the truth. The truth of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and how all scripture points to that. In, again, John's Gospel, uh, the Gospel that this writer of this letter wrote in John chapter 15, we read, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And Jesus is talking to his apostles. So do you see from those verses that the apostles were the human channels through which the truth would be relayed. The Spirit was their enabler, their inspiration, and their guidance. And you're sitting here today in this church with this NIV Bible in your hands because of the work of the Spirit. Without his witness, there would be no apostolic testimony, there would be no knowing who Jesus is and what he did. So the Holy Spirit bears witness through the scriptures, through God's word, and he has a dramatic effect upon people's lives today, just as he did then, 2,000 years ago. This is uh, summarized quite helpfully by the Westminster Confession, when it says, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth is from the inward work of the Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. But remember where we are. We're still in the law courts. John is still seeking to prove who Jesus Christ is. And that's why we've seen these uh, three witnesses, these three character references. But in a court of law, what do witnesses have to do before they can give testimony? Well, they have to declare, I swear by Almighty God that I will tell the truth. But of course, the Spirit doesn't need to do that because he is God. All our concepts of truth derived from him, originates from God. And this matches up to what we've seen in this passage. Have a look again at the end of verse 6. Why does the Spirit bear witness? Because the Spirit is the truth. So, we've heard the character references of our three witnesses, each of which offer us clear evidence as to who this man in the dock is. But we see two more details that help us still further to know beyond doubt who Jesus Christ really is. So firstly, we see that these witnesses aren't in disagreement. At uh, my university church in uh, Southampton, I occasionally helped out with uh, the youth group there. And I think most of you will be familiar with the game Sardines. It's a, a glorified version of hide and seek. And you can pretty much hide wherever you like. You've got to find the person and all kind of bundle in together. And it's a lot of fun. And we said to these guys, you can hide anywhere in this church, but just don't go upstairs into that room because we've got some stuff in there which is uh, quite expensive. We don't want you to damage it. And so off they all hid, and everyone, you know, hid. A few minutes later, we'd found everyone except these two guys. And we called, we shouted out loudly, so the game is over, it's time to go home. And they came down and said, oh, were you hiding together? And said, yeah, we were hiding together, we're the winners. And we said, oh, were you hiding upstairs? And together, at the same time, they said they weren't, and that they were hiding in different places. And they both said different places at the same time. And of course it was really clear straight away from that that they weren't being completely honest with us. 
because their stories didn't match up. They were hiding upstairs. But that's not what's going on here at all. No, have a look at verse 8. The three are in agreement. This is the truth. And these three character references all match up and are in complete agreement. And secondly, in verse 9, John gives us a good bit of logic. He says that in a court of law, a man's testimony is accepted. If this evening I wanted to prove to you that I was uh, Stephen Sweet born in Swindon, I would probably have to call up my parents and they would have to you know, be a reference to me to prove my identity. They might have to show my birth certificate to see who I really was. And with su- sufficient proof, uh, the testimony of my parents would be accepted. And that's what John says here, that we accept man's testimony. But take a step back, because he then goes on to say that the testimony of God is greater. Why? Well, because it's the testimony of God. We've seen already that God is truth, and therefore his trustworthiness is infinitely greater than that of mortal man's. But John is not just trying to show us that uh, God is greater, uh, being more trustworthy than us, but also the greater importance of who this testimony is about. So much more important than who I am or whether or not I'm from Swindon is the question, who is Jesus? And that's why we see in verse 9 that God's testimony truly is greater If man's testimony about man is accepted, then surely, surely we have to accept God's testimony about God. Because he's completely trustworthy and because it's so much more important. But just when you think that John can rest his case, that he's made his point, he calls in one final witness and adds a fourth dimension to his argument. If you this evening are an active, believing Christian here in St. Mary's, then you are John's fourth witness. Look at verse uh, 10 with me. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Because they have not believed the testimony of God has, uh, the, the testimony God has given about his Son. Now what John is affirming here is that this testimony is in the Christian because he or she is believing in the Son of God. Beginning of verse 10 there. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Believes there is the present participle and shows an ongoing permanent belief. And the word following that, in, shows us that belief is uh, much more than simply understanding or what God said and uh, accepting that. No, John says, his phrase in verse 10 is, believes in the Son of God. And it means to fully commit yourself to him in every way. It's not just a a momentary faith, but one that is permanent. The experience of the Christian is that as we meet with the historical Christ through the apostolic testimony, through what we know about Jesus in the Bible, that as that takes place, The facts of uh, all that Jesus accomplished in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection 
become internalized in us. They're no longer simply facts on a page, but life-changing truths in our hearts. And that's what it is to be born again, to be a Christian, to see the truth as to who Jesus is in his word, through the water, the blood, and the spirit, and to believe. That's what it is to be a Christian. And it's believing in him that saves us, which is then confirmed and deepened in our hearts by the work of the spirit. The Apostle Paul helps us to see this when he writes in Galatians 4, Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So if you're believing and living with these truths in your heart, then you have a personal relationship with God. You can call the almighty creator of the universe, Abba, Father. If that's you, then you are a witness to who Jesus is. If you have accepted that testimony, and uh, if that testimony, uh, sorry, and then John says in verse 11 that God has given us eternal life, that if you have accepted that testimony for yourselves, then we have been given eternal life. But what's the flip side of all this? What if you don't accept this testimony? Well, John doesn't beat about the bush. He says that you are calling God a liar. And that's fair enough, isn't it? Because it was God who testified about his son. And if you say that Jesus was anybody or anything else other than the son of God, then you are calling God a liar. And that's just as serious as it sounds. John tells us in verse 12 that this really is a matter of life and death. If we have the Son, then we have life. But if we do not, if we have rejected this testimony, then we do not have the Son and we do not have life, now or for eternity. It's really heavy stuff. But I hope you can see that this really is worth thinking about. That there is a stern warning here. That there is also such a wonderful promise. One commentator has written that John is not concerned over academic disagreements or theological niceties. Eternal life is at stake. And as such, these verses are amongst the most magnificent in the whole of the New Testament. And on that note, uh, John finishes his defense. But the trial isn't over just yet because now he moves on to the offensive. In verses 13 to 17, And instead of pointing to the character of Christ, he points to us and how we should be responding to what we've seen so far. So John's purpose for us. There are two underlying reasons as to why John has written all this, and they're outlined in these five verses. John wants us, in response to this trial that we've been a part of this evening, to have two things. To have assurance of eternal life, and to have confidence in approaching God. Now, I think assurance is actually something which is really rare uh, today. There are not many things in life that are really sure. It's not, we're not sure who will win The Apprentice. We're not sure, perhaps, if our car will pass 
uh, is next MOT. We're not sure if uh, Chelsea will make it in the Premier League next season or if they get relegated. I'm trying to catch Ollie's eye there. More seriously, though, perhaps we're not sure where we'll go to university. We're not sure where we'll end up living. We're not sure who we'll end up in a relationship with. We're not sure what job we'll get. We're not sure when we'll die. There is so much we can't be sure of in this world. But one thing that we can know beyond doubt is that we have eternal life if we believe in the name of the Son of God. In a world full of doubt and skepticism, we can have assurance. In response to these witnesses, in response to this letter, we can really know that we have life forever. And remember back to quite a long time ago now, the beginning of the letter, where in uh, 1 John 1 verse 4, John stated why he was writing this epistle. To make our joy complete. And here we see how that joy is completed. When John writes in verse 13 of our passage, I write these things to you who believe in in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. With assurance comes joy. And this joy goes so much deeper than just a smile, although looking around this evening, that wouldn't go amiss every now and then either. (laughs) No, this joy, this joy is a joy that can only come from a sure knowledge that we have life forever. The second thing that John wants us to have in response to this passage is a confidence in approaching God. We've seen that in believing these truths, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, we can have a personal relationship with God. We can know God. And the first characteristic of knowing uh, God is confidence in approaching him. But how do you approach the king? Well, I imagine with respect, with reverence, with humility, and with obedience. Thinking of our own uh, royal family, and uh, one day recognizing that, uh, God willing, uh, Prince William will be King William V. Sounds quite weird, doesn't it? William V. And how will his son, Prince George, have to approach him? Well, with respect, with reverence, with humility, and with obedience, because he is the king. But at the same time, George will always be William's son. He will always be loved by him, and he will always be heard by him, because he is the king's son. And if that's true of an earthly king, how much more so is it true of a divine king? We can approach God with complete confidence, knowing that he loves us so much. We know this because he saved us and made us his children. In verse 14 we read, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that we can go to God with our shopping list prayers and expect God to give us everything that we want. No, it's anything according to his will. We see this really clearly, again, in the son of the king, the son of God, Jesus when he's about to be arrested, tortured, 
and crucified. He prays this. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. We need to pray like Jesus, recognizing that God is our Father, but praying that his will may be done and not ours. We need to ground our prayers in the Bible because it's through God's word that we know him, we know his character, and we know his will. And this is evidenced in our final verses of this passage, in verse 16 and 17, where it says that we should pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin. That is God's will. And those are the sorts of things that we should be praying for, confidently, knowing that God will hear us. And that's it. That's where John, that's where we'll conclude this trial with John. John, the defence lawyer, has made his case, and now it's up to you how you will respond. If you like, you are the members of the jury for your own hearts. Only you can decide how you will respond to what we've heard from John this evening. The verdict is out. The witnesses have spoken, and the question that was posed at the beginning was, who is Jesus Christ? And that's been answered with the Son of God. For some of you this evening, this may be something that you're still considering. You may be completely new to St. Mary's and to what Christians believe. And to you, the whole thing seems a little bit ridiculous. And in order for you to actually believe that Jesus was God's Son, you're going to need some pretty hard evidence. Well, I hope this evening, as we've gone through these 12 verses together, that you've been able to see that there really is hard evidence that enables us to believe that Jesus was God's Son. That by his baptism, his death, and by the Holy Spirit, and also by the testimony of other Christians, we may know without a shadow of doubt that this is true. Maybe you've been coming to St. Mary's for a while now, but you've been more of a passenger rather than an active member. Perhaps your family are Christians and perhaps you have friends who come along to St. Mary's. But you're still not completely sure as to who Jesus Christ is. And ultimately, you're not really sure whether or not it actually matters all that much. You're quite happily living your life as you want to live it. But my desire for you and John's desire for you is that you will really see that this does matter. That this literally is a matter of life and death. So please don't ignore what we've just looked at and heard this, uh, this evening. Don't brush it out of your minds as soon as we grab a tea and coffee afterwards. This matters now and forever. Or maybe you fall into the category where you are sure, where you really know that Jesus was God's son and that by believing that, you have the promise of life forever. And that's great. And you really do believe that. But have you realised what this means for you personally? Do you have that deep sense of assurance? That's why John has written this, so that you may have the joy of assurance. And are you, in light of this, uh, approaching God as your Father, confidently in prayer, knowing that he will hear us, according 
to his will. So, how about you? Who is Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God. How will you respond to this? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, first and foremost, for your Son, who through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection meant that we can have that wonderful, wonderful promise of life with you forever. Help us from this chapter that we've been looking at this evening to really realise this for our own lives. Not to get caught up in the busyness of everyday life of uh, this term, but just to stop for a moment and to think, do we really know in our own hearts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do we believe this? And do we have that promise of eternal life for ourselves? Father, thank you that we can call you Father, that we can approach you in prayer. Thank you that you hear us through your Son, and that through him, we too are your children, and children of that wonderful promise. We thank you for all of these things and ask you that you help us to continue to think about them in the week ahead. For your glory. Amen.